Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. As the state reworks school funding, lawmakers weigh politics versus efficient spending. Sort of a, a fairness type concept where we'll, we'll try to balance those two things. We will also talk to award-winning author Timothy Egan. And it's been over a month since Uber arrived in Wyoming, and they've seen a lot of interest. But now it's the, the market is so flooded with you know drivers, and there's just not that many people u- utilizing it, um, especially throughout the daylight hours. We also urge you to support Open Spaces with your pledge at 1-800-729-5897 or on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Support the news you rely on and then join us for the show from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Earlier this month, legislators met to take another look at the school funding model and possibly change it. That's called recalibration. Changing school funding is tricky business. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson says politics is a big variable in the spending equation. The only thing that everyone at the April meeting of the Select Committee for School Finance Recalibration could agree on was Wyoming can't cut or tax its way out of this $400 million deficit. It's going to take a balance of both. And while the cost of K-12 education in Wyoming tallies up among the highest in the nation, administrators like Sweetwater County District 2 Superintendent Donna Little Cuomo pleaded with lawmakers that it's with good reason. One of the things we face in Wyoming is the rural nature. Little Cuomo points out they don't have a lot of theaters and amenities that larger towns have, so attracting teachers to rural Wyoming requires money. And while the committee was generally sympathetic to the challenges faced by rural schools, Senator Ray Peterson, who also chairs the Senate Revenue Committee, said he doesn't feel comfortable asking for tax increases when he sees overspending. I mean, this is getting irrational anymore. I mean, we're we're spending money because we have it. And now when the downturn hits, everybody's crying and complaining about reductions. I'm going, well, no, maybe it is time we reduce just a little bit. But supposedly this is a cost-based model grounded in data. So where's there room for the kind of gratuitous spending Peterson is concerned about? Dr. Lori Taylor has consulted on the last two recalibrations. You definitely could make the case that the way the regional cost adjustment is set up would lead to relatively overfunding certain districts. What's the regional cost adjustment? This is something the state devised when they were trying to address equity in school funding. This is how the regional cost adjustment is supposed to work. In more remote communities where amenities aren't great, you might have to pay a teacher more to lure them to the area. Similarly, in more urban areas, you might have to pay a teacher more to cover a higher cost of housing. So the regional cost adjustment provides districts the extra funds they need to be able to attract qualified staff in each of these situations. And the adjustment also equates for districts with below average costs, places with affordable housing and beautiful surroundings where it's easy easier to attract teachers, wouldn't need the help, and so their funding would be adjusted down. But Dr. Taylor says districts with below-average costs don't actually get less because politics tweaked the math. She says the legislature decided to fund all districts at the state average or above. But 
the whole definition of an average is some people are above average and some people are below average, right? And as a result, the resources going to any district below the state average with respect to regional costs are greater than would be necessary to fund the model. So what Taylor is saying is the state pays districts money that it doesn't need to. But they did it to keep everybody happy. Senator Chris Rothfuss of Laramie is a longtime member of the Joint Education Committee. He says legislators understand they have a problem, but... We've taken hours upon hours upon hours of testimony on it. We've hired consultants to develop new RCA recommendations. We've had people who are very capable of doing that uh, come in and provide us with their best recommendation, which is, in fact, better than what we've got uh, in terms of its sort of scientific and economic integrity. Uh, but we have never adopted it. According to estimates by the Legislative Services Office, adopting Dr. Lori Taylor's recommendation could save the state up to $38 million a year. But going with the more cost-effective option is a political battle the legislature has not wanted to fight. Regional cost adjustment is one of several areas where politics seem to trump efficient spending. The legislature also deviates from the model on class size, for example. And Rothfuss pointed to a proposal to consolidate districts, which, without closing any schools, would streamline administrative costs, saving up to $7.5 million. But school districts do not want consolidation. Many legislators do not want any type of consolidation. Uh, That's one that is probably not politically viable to even have that conversation. So the challenge before the recalibration committee is finding the sweet spot between what's financially viable and what's politically viable. Rothfuss says that's what some lawmakers tried to do during the 2017 legislative session was something called the education white paper. What we came up with was trying to achieve cuts of around $80 million a year. And those looked painful. We were not excited about achieving $80 million in cuts. Nobody was. But we thought it was achievable, and that was our objective. The idea is let's try to identify cuts, and then let's try and identify revenue, new revenue that's equal to those cuts, sort of a a fairness-type concept where we'll we'll try to balance those two things. But that idea went nowhere. Instead, the legislature only reduced the budget by $34.5 million, generated no revenue, and called for this recalibration. By the way, those cuts are less then were proposed by tweaking the regional cost adjustment. In other words, there are a lot of challenges to work out this summer, and it seems like it may have more to do with politics than math. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. And while the legislature and the school system continue to work on the $400 million deficit at the state level, Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter, Tennessee Watson, also sat down with Brian Farmer from the Wyoming School Boards Association. Farmer says local school boards offer a critical perspective on spending and outcomes because it's a conversation they are constantly having on the local level. I would submit that school boards are actually one of the most democratic institutions that we have in this country. It's, it's fundamentally the link between the public and the educational system. So if education in Wyoming in particular is one of the highest rights, it, it's a constitutional right, something that we recognize uh, as being uh, fundamental, then how does the public manage their expectation of what that education will be 
that's really through the school board. School board is the link. So among the most important jobs that school boards have, one of those most important jobs is the allocation of resources. So the block grant that our state system provides creates a mechanism for funding education, and then how we use that block grant at the local level is determined by the school board. So if that community, for example, values career and technical education, they may find that the funding formula was insufficient to provide enough for uh, career technical education. Perhaps they want to uh, have a very strong and vibrant uh, ag program. So they may choose to allocate resources more than what was provided under the block grant to that kind of program. And so they'll go through that annual budgeting process of determining the priorities and then the allocations of funds within the district. Uh, and then they have to vote on in a public meeting and approve that budget. Are they also uh, dealing with salaries for teachers and administrators? That's uh, an essential part of, of the budget. So budgeting isn't just a one meeting. It's not just one and done. It's not just rubber stamping what the superintendent brings to you. Uh, the process for the school board really starts sometime around the beginning of the year, January or February. Uh, and they talk about priorities and things that matter to them and what they're going to start to expend resources on. Then as we get through the legislative session, we have to tweak a little bit based on the results of a legislative session. This year, tweak quite a lot. And uh, you're going to see that in many of these service-type organizations like a school district, somewhere around 80-85% of your budget goes to personnel. Uh, April 15th is an important date for making employment decisions for those uh, that are, are teachers. And so you have to make your decisions by that point of who are the uh, folks that you are going to continue their employment uh, after that, you're, you're um, continuing to gather enrollment information. Uh, perhaps you have more kids that move into the community over the summer and you need to add uh, some staff. So it's, it's a long process that really is kind of a January through July of determining um, that resource allocation, and a huge chunk of it goes toward, uh, toward your personnel. Are they well-resourced to push back? Like, can they really hold administrators accountable and not give them what they want? I mean, what does that really look like? So, for example, if an administrator was not um, leading a, a building or leading the district to make the academic achievement that was expected, uh, they may decide that they're not going to continue the contract of that administrator. Uh, and oftentimes the public's going to come out and say, well, gosh, we sure like this person. They're a nice person. They're a, a, a great principal or they were friendly to my kids or something that they had that connection with. And so more often we're seeing the communities not coming in saying you're overspending. The community's coming in and saying we like uh, the folks that we have and we don't understand why they're leaving. Yet school boards are making that tough decision to say, even in the face of a popular person, we're looking at the results. And if the results aren't where we expect them to be, then we're going to have to have a change in leadership to get those results. And at the end of the day, probably the biggest thing that the public has on its side is, is at the ballot box. If the school board's not getting it done, uh, then the community is going to elect uh, new members of the school board. Uh, just like if a legislature is not getting it done, then they're going to elect new legislators. So we do 
uh, get a lot of community feedback as school board members, um, hearing about uh, what the community wants from the educational system. Do you see a way in which the school boards can help us get through this impasse of where legislators are seeing it one way and then, you know, administrators are holding on tight to this is what it costs? Well, I would say that this is something school boards wrestle with all the time. Uh, In good years or bad years, it's always uh, wrestling with the question of how do we utilize our resources the best we can for the benefit of our students. Uh, And it's really important to know about what does it cost to provide uh, that adequate education uh, and make sure that we are resourcing the educational system appropriately. And uh, I think that that's something that that school boards can kind of help bring to the table is uh, help make sense of the data that we get. Is it good data? Is it meaningful data? Is it match with what our public uh, is telling us? Uh, I don't think we're going to find some smoking gun in this process, this aha eureka moment that we figure out, oh, we just, if we knew that, we could have done it better all along. I think we've been looking for those things, and we've been tweaking things along the way. Uh, I'm not of the opinion that we have a spending problem. Uh, I think that we have a challenge in how do we uh, manage the resources that we have, and is it necessary to to identify additional resources? Um, It may be, it may not. Um, I think it's a big, big question for us to grapple with as a state And school board members are already engaged in this kind of work. So it's not necessary to reinvent a wheel. Uh, It's just necessary to utilize the processes that we have, uh, engage those people that have been elected to be the link between uh, the school system and the public as a way of of garnering feedback uh, in this process. Tennessee Watson brought us that interview with Brian Farmer from the Wyoming School Boards Association. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Uber has been operating in the state for just over a month now. Their launch followed Governor Matt Mead's signing of a bill to legally authorize ride-sharing companies in Wyoming. However, while some consumers have been taking advantage of the service, others are less excited. Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen has more. Brandon French was one of the very first drivers to start working for Uber in March. Right now, he's a university student in Laramie. He says Meade signed the bill on a Friday, and he was on the road that weekend. It was Saturday or Sunday is when I was first driving, and it was great. I mean, I-80 was shut down at the time, so it came down to the point where all these truck drivers were flooding into Laramie, and they were all parked everywhere. French says a lot of them needed a ride for a warm meal, so they used the Uber app on their smartphones to request a driver. And then I pick them up, drive them where they need to go, and I was getting multiple requests, one after the next and after the next. The service works just like that. A customer uses the Uber application on their phone to type in their destination. Then an estimated fare is given before the rider can choose to send a request to the nearest available driver. It sounds very similar to requesting a taxi ride, but it's different. Franz Schreiner is the territory manager for Uber. He says the company offers a different kind of service. We're a 
transportation network company that built a smartphone application uh, where you can use your personal car to give people rides. And that's really one of the things that sets us apart from cabs. Compared to cab companies, Uber has very few regulations. Schreiner says that's by design because the company wants to make sure it's easy as possible for someone to earn extra income by driving on the platform. Schreiner says interested drivers go online, fill out a couple of quick forms, and undergo a background screening process. And in a few days, um, you are hopefully ready to start driving. And then you just download the Uber driver app and you can start immediately whenever you want. The lack of regulation has caught the attention of cab companies. Tom Elliott is the owner of Casper Cabs, which has been in business just over 10 years. He says Uber is not fair competition. Generally speaking, they are a lower price than a taxi. Um, But that's because they don't have all the overheads. Elliott says taxi drivers face more stringent background checks and companies have to purchase expensive commercial insurance to cover cars even when they're not in use. Uber only insures drivers when they have a passenger in their vehicle. Elliott also says the state of Wyoming has agreed to lower safety standards specifically for Uber drivers. He says many cab companies are already losing money. Quite likely that some of us, all of us, will go out of business. According to Uber's Franz Schreiner, the service has become very popular. Over the course of the past month, we've seen amazing growth on the uh, on the trip side of things. And we're just we're really excited for what the future holds for Wyoming. It's going to be a busy summer there in Wyoming, and we're happy to be a part of it. Schreiner says that could include service in some of the state's more rural areas. But one of the challenges may be how popular it is with drivers. Uber driver Brandon French says when he first started driving in Laramie, he saw an immediate demand. But now it's the, the market is so flooded with, you know, drivers and there's just not that many people u- utilizing it, um, especially throughout the daylight hours. French says the high number of drivers in Laramie and lower demand has significantly impacted his pay. Time will only tell how well the service both catches on and remains popular in the state. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. In the months before President Obama left office, the question of whether the American public was getting fair market value on coal was part of what led him to impose a moratorium on new coal leases. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke lifted that moratorium recently, but he says he still wants to review the system used to determine coal prices. I talked with Cloud Peak spokesman Richard Reavy about how the issue looks through the eyes of an energy company. You know, maybe you could just start by talking about, um, from your point of view, why you feel that coal is paying the American public a fair price for the use of public lands. So I think there are two bases on which to establish, you know, that's a fact. The vast amount of coal extracted from federal land is from the Powder River Basement. It's about 80 percent, maybe 85 percent. And the overwhelming majority of coal mined in the Powder River Basin uh, delivers roughly 40% of the selling price. Not 40% of the profit, 40% of the selling price of a ton of coal from the Powder River Basin is delivered in in taxes, fees, and royalties to the American people. This essentially makes federal coal one of the highest taxed commodities in the world. The next one is on the question of uh, leasing rates. 
Um, and it's not my opinion that federal leases deliver uh, at least fair market value to the American people. It's the nature of the system. Every single lease has a value, a minimum value set by the BLM that they determine as fair market value. No successful bid can be below the determined fair market value. So by definition, every single bid that is successful has either met fair market value or exceeded it. And so do you feel like, um, you know, from your point of view, that the pricing system that's in place now is a, a perfect system from the point of view of coal companies? Or are there aspects of it that you would still like to see evaluated? You know, look, everybody's going to have concerns, issues. Would we like it improved? Would you know, certainly we'd like the process to move faster. Certainly we would like a little bit more transparency in the way the system works, as would everybody. But at the end of the day, the system works. Yeah. And, you know, from what it sounds like, the, the, the coal moratorium was actually an opportunity for everybody at the table to sort of reevaluate and say, OK, what, would we, what system would be better um, for instance, um, one of the options might have been to remove the auction system uh, and to just create a price that this is what it costs. Were some of those options sound like they might work for you? The, the moratorium was an act of pandering by Secretary Jewell and the Obama administration to their allies in the Keep It in the Ground movement. There is absolutely no justification whatsoever for stopping coal leasing while a review of the program is undertaken. Um, as to you know the proposal you make about getting rid of the auction system, I don't see the benefits to that for the American people. Right now, BLM establishes a fair market value for leases that they intend to put out. They're not usually you know bids that receive huge numbers of of bids from coal producers because of the structure of the industry and the way that that mines are planned and laid out. But there are frequently more than one bid uh, for a, a, a mine. So you already have a minimum established fair market value that any successful bid has to exceed. By having an auction system, it's possible that you would exceed that even more in the competitive bidding process. So I don't see why getting rid of, of the auction system necessarily does any good for the American taxpayer. I think it's just important to remember that, that the voices that are loudest in decrying the federal coal program um, are voices of people who are not concerned about getting a fair return for the American people. What they're concerned about is ending the federal coal leasing program. You know, people whose motto is keep it in the ground want zero dollars going to the American people for their natural resources. Um, what they want is vast sums of money to continue to go uh, in wind and solar subsidies to the individuals and groups that are funding their organizations. You know, this isn't, um, you know, the good little activists versus big coal. 
Aren't they uh, also? Really aren't they fun. also? Um, you know, sort of representing this sort of concern over the role that coal is playing in in climate change and and rising global temperatures. So it's very simple. If activist groups want to impose some kind of a climate change tax on oil, gas, or coal extracted from federal lands, they need to go to Congress and get the legislative body of the United States of America to impose such a tax. Attempts to secretly use royalty policy as a climate tax are illegal, pure and simple. That was Cloud Peak Energy spokesman Richard Reavy talking about the ongoing debate over the coal pricing system. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. This next piece is from our podcast, Human Nature, Real Stories Where Humans and Our Habitat Meet. Caroline Ballard brings us the story of a city that dealt with its drought in an unusual way. A big part of Melbourne, Australia's identity is its spectacular parks and gardens. But Deputy Lord Mayor Aaron Wood says growing trees on one of the driest continents on Earth isn't easy. It all came from something which was pretty sad and and truly devastating for the city. And, you know, I watched that unfold. We went through what is now called the Millennium Drought, and it was a drought which ended up being more than a decade long. And, you know, halfway through that drought, there was a a real thought, well, gee, is this the the new normal? Are we, you know, ever going to see a break in this drought? And, of course, we'd faced droughts before, but this was was something new, the intensity of the drought, the length of the drought. We have over 77,000 trees that we manage in public spaces in our parks and gardens and streetscapes. And we were looking at losing close to half of that urban forest population within the next 10 to 20 years as a result of that millennium drought. So this was really serious stuff. It was crisis stuff. You know, what the heck are we going to do? So Aaron and the city's urban forestry team had their work cut out. And what we saw wasn't just the trees declining in health. I watched an area particularly along uh, a river that runs right through the middle of Melbourne, the Yarra River, uh, and, you know, beautiful, you know, green grass, um, everything you think about for a beautiful city park and garden. And it didn't just sort of, you, you didn't just see the grass turn brown and die. What happened was it it first died because there were severe water restrictions. And then because the drought was so prolonged, it literally turned to dust. So what you saw there was a a fundamental change in what people, you know, believe Melbourne to be. So it it wasn't just about, you know, the parks and gardens and the environment. It was literally about the identity for Melburnians to be looking out and seeing a completely different landscape to what they'd grown up with and to what they knew and loved about Melbourne.
there are still you know, many impacts from that millennium drought that can be seen in a lot of the mature trees, particularly the European trees, which suffer a lot more uh, in those conditions. And indeed, a lot of our mature trees have been severely impacted in terms of reducing their useful life. Their canopies are just nothing like a healthy tree, you know, a few leaves here and there. So it's really quite a distressing thing to see. But because of all the action that we've taken, many of you know, our parks and gardens are green and thriving. What we learnt through the millennium drought has returned what we had before, and that's you know, what Melbourne's renowned for, um, some of the best parks and gardens that you'll see. But it's not just about looking pretty. Parks and urban forests provide microclimates and help cool the city. You know, the urban heat island effect is well known and documented. The urban forests and indeed our trees are really the first defence against combating the urban heat island effect. Managing all these trees is a big job. So the city has a document called the Urban Forest Strategy, which Aaron and his team developed in response to the millennium drought. That's got two really important targets in it. We want to double the forest canopy cover over the next 20 years from about 20% forest canopy cover to up over 40%, and that's about cooling the city. But we also want to diversify the species that we've got in our urban forest to protect against you know, disease and to make them more resilient to a changing climate, and indeed a climate that's really quite a harsh climate to grow trees in. We mapped all the trees because if we're going to manage this urban forest, we've got to map them. Every tree was given an ID so that we could manage them. It's really, really simple, really visual. And the amazing thing is, you know, for someone who lives in a street in Melbourne is that they can go right down to their street level and literally see the trees that are outside in their street. This online map of Melbourne has dots to represent each tree. When you click on a dot, you see information about that particular tree and the tree's own personal email address. And indeed, the whole email of tree arose because once we mapped them, we thought, wow, what we could have here is residents could email in a tree ID and say, this tree has dropped a limb or this tree is looking like it's suffering through um, you know, warmer weather. And we could then uh, actually get out there and, and, and take you know, any sort of remedial action that was necessary. The city started to get emails like that. This tree has dropped a limb, the new tree on my street isn't growing properly. But not all the emails to trees were so pragmatic. Then we had all sorts of you know funny emails. There was one I remember because I started reading a lot of them and someone emailing saying, I'm really sorry, tree, you know, four, five, three, that my dog peed on you this morning. You know, just just quirky, funny things like that. But then there was some quite heartfelt ones too where um, one of the emails I remember was a lady uh, emailed a group of trees outside our state library and they're, they're really stunning trees that have been there for a long time and she said that I had taken water from my office out to you through the drought and I'm so happy that you're surviving and thriving to this day and it makes me smile every time I, I walk past you. So it just, it was quite a, an unbelievable outpouring. Lots of humour but also lots of really heartfelt uh, emails as well. We just didn't quite anticipate the love of Melbourne's urban forest from residents and indeed all around the world. It's just, it's amazing because it shows that people really are taking ownership for the urban forest. It's not the city of Melbourne's urban forest anymore. It's our urban forest, the residents. 
What did you think when you started to see that some of these were very personal emails? Well, I mean, initially you kind of think, oh gosh, you know, what are, what are people going to think of this? You know, this is sort of the classic, um, you know, what is local government doing, you know, using time and resources on an email a tree program. The good thing about it is that the resources taken are very minimal, so we're happy on that front. Um, but the, the really important part of this is if you want to build support and ownership of the urban forest, then having people want to email a tree and and talk about you know that this tree played a big role as they were growing up or you know one student um, from one of the universities emailed the tree during an exam saying I'm really quite stressed out at the moment I wish I was out there with you tree ID you know whatever the tree ID was but what it demonstrates is just it demonstrates a growing um, real love for Melbourne's urban forest that we can translate into support for what we're doing. So do you have some of those uh, those emails handy? I certainly do. Would Could, you like me to read some? I would love for you to read some. Okay, here we go. So this is one to the Western Red Cedar. Hi, Tree. Are you worried about being affected by the Greek debt crisis? Should Greece be allowed to stay in the European Union? Regards, Troy. Now, that obviously happened during the Greek debt crisis. So there you go. Uh, the Weeping Myrtle, this one I love. Hello, Weeping Myrtle. I'm sitting inside near you and I noticed on the urban tree map you don't have many friends nearby. I think that's sad, so I want you to know that I'm thinking of you. I also want to thank you for providing oxygen for us to breathe in the hustle and bustle of the city. Best regards. And this this one is also a good one too. Hi, Tree. Or hello, Greenleaf Elm, more appropriately. It's me again. I just got my marks for last semester back. On a definitely, completely unrelated note, how do you deal with the constant, relentlessly soul-crushing pain of disappointment after disappointment that characterises our lives on Earth? You must be very old, right? So I thought you might know. Thanks again, your friend. <laughs> See, quite, quite varied. Do the trees write back ever? They do, they do. That's, um, I sort of, I felt like I was, you know, breaking the... Um, the written code about you know Santa Claus or Father Christmas not being real, when I told them that it wasn't actually the tree that was replying, it was um, some of our dedicated volunteers. But the trees do reply, so you know the wonderful thing is um, people can send in an email and actually get back a reply, which is often a nice surprise for people. Hi, Cyprus Plain. My name is Ivo, and I live in Split, Croatia. I'm 15, and I'm going to Queen Yelena College. How about you? What's up in Melbourne? Regards from Split, smiley face, XOXO. Hi, Ivo. There is plenty going on in Melbourne. It's the start of autumn here, so I will be losing my leaves as soon as we have a cold snap in the weather. This weekend, there was a festival called Moomba, so the city was very busy. Next weekend is the International Flower and Garden Show, which is my favourite event, but I guess I am a bit biased. Hope things are well in Split. Cypress Plain, Tree ID... 1024776 Dear lemon gums, I think of you as twins rather than individuals. I know that troubles some human twins, but I like to think trees are very communally minded. You are both different. 1022036 with your smooth trunk and 1022037 with your barley sugar twist. You will always be two of my favorite Melbourne trees. May you live long and prosper. 
Best regards, Amanda. Thank you, Amanda. Such kind words. We don't mind if you think of us as twins. Beneath the soil, our roots are intertwined and we share nutrients. We are actually a lot luckier than many of the trees in the city because we have each other. Some trees are isolated in plots. In fact, a fantastic human recently gave a TED talk about how trees rely on each other. Best wishes, lemon scented gum, tree ID 1022036, and tree ID 1022037. Dear Tree at End of Swanston Street, I used to admire you and your mate when I was a young student at Melbourne Uni and lived in college in 1970-71. to You reminded me of my country background, and you still do, 45 years later. Despite the increasing traffic, you still stand tall and free. Long may you do so. Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for getting in touch. I've lived such a long life and seen so many humans in my time, so it's always nice to hear that I have stood out in someone's memory. Yes, it's a tough job being a tree in the city, with all the cars and concrete, but someone has to do it. It will be very sad to have no trees at all. Hope to see you again sometime. Best, lemon-scented gum. Tree ID, 1022037. What did it feel like for the trees to be almost given personalities by some of the people sending in emails. You know, it, it sort of astounded me initially that people would, you know, take the time in their day to do this. But at the sort of furthest end of this, there's a, there's a real kind of philosophical or, or academic movement around what it means to be part of an ecosystem. And, and I think what it demonstrates is the fact that nature is intrinsically part of who we are. And it perhaps demonstrates a growing awareness or even an awakening of, of the fact that we're part of a natural ecosystem. And I, and I think that's a really important thing because particularly in urban environments, we can be you know, quite divorced from, from the natural environment and, and forget that we're actually part of a system. You know, the air we breathe, the water we drink, you know, the food we grow, and you know, indeed the trees that provide you know, all of these wonderful services for us. That connection with nature and, and to be part of nature is important to our psyche and there's all sorts of studies about green spaces being important for well-being and you know we forget that we forget that we're part of a natural system and and that can have impacts really quite directly on our health so this is just another kind of outpouring of that need to be connected and I think it's you know it's a really lovely thing to to see how much people love the trees and the parks and the gardens um, and want to have more of that nature in the city. Our storyteller was Aaron Wood. He's the Deputy Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Australia. So the, the funniest thing was that, you know, I'm my name is Aaron Wood and obviously I was, you know, in charge of the urban forest, but the deputy chair of the environment portfolio was Kathy Oak. So, uh, and the uh, officer in charge was Ian Shears. So uh, there you go. So Wood, Oak and Shears managing the urban forest for Melbourne. That story is part of our podcast, Human Nature, and you can listen to more stories and subscribe to our feed at humannaturepodcast.org.
This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming's cases of sexually transmitted disease have been increasing in recent years. And a recent update shows that despite efforts of health care providers, it's still a concern. Courtney Smith is the Communicable Disease Program Manager for the Wyoming Department of Health. She says they have one key area of concern. We are still seeing an upward trend in STDs, um, particularly so among gonorrhea cases. Um, we had a six-fold increase in the rate of gonorrhea from 2012 to 2016. That seems like a lot, but I also understand that other states might be facing a similar kind of thing. That's correct. Other states are seeing an increase as well. Um, and compared to other states, we're still toward the bottom in terms of new infections, but the, the increase is still alarming. Are you seeing other STDs uh, problematic as well? Um, chlamydia is not really problematic, but syphilis has increased as well, um, going from about 12 cases in 2012 to 18 in 2016. The easy question is just simply to ask you, what, what do you figure is going on? I don't think that we can pinpoint one thing or another contributing to it. Um, one of the things that we have seen increase in recent years is the number of people who are infected that report an anonymous sex partner. Um, this could be due to hookup apps or meeting people online. Um, we've also seen some reports that indicate that potentially birth control um, is another reason. So people are primarily concerned with preventing pregnancy. And so if they're on a long-acting birth control, then they may not use condoms as well. Um, and we know that birth control does not prevent against STDs. So the condom use is something that you've been focused on with some recent uh, press releases and that type of thing. Are, is it that people just aren't using them all because there's other ways to deal with pregnancies? That's one idea, mm -hmm, that people um, are, are concerned with preventing pregnancy, and if they're on birth control, then um, they have that prevention there and don't necessarily understand or um, aren't as concerned with preventing STDs by using condoms. Mm -hmm. So is, is, is the message to see if we can get people to use more condoms? Sure, yeah. So always um, abstinence is the most effective way to prevent getting an STD, but uh, usually it's not um, the best method for some people. Um, so we do promote condom use. Um, we have several programs available. We have dispensers in some counties where people can go and just get free condoms out of the dispensers. We also have a condom mailer program, so if you can't get to a dispenser, we can just mail it directly to your home. I would imagine people that have things like gonorrhea, if, if they notice it, there's, there's treatment available. Is, is part of the problem people aren't getting treated or aren't checking for that? Part of the problem is about 50%, 50 uh, of people will not actually have any symptoms. So many people don't even know they're infected and they're potentially spreading it to other partners until they go in and get routine testing or that type of thing. Um, once people are tested and find out they're positive, then it is pretty easily treatable. So that's what we're, we're asking people to do. How often should they get tested? Um, it depends on risk. So um, with any new partner, people should get tested. If people have multiple sex partners within the past 60 days, um, we do recommend annual screening for sexually active people between the age of 15 and 24. That's one thing that uh, I, I wonder if people find it complicated or they don't want to do. Is it easy to get tested? Can you take us through that process? Sure, to get tested, it's easy and it's painless. Um, we do have clinics all throughout the state where people can go to get low or no-cost testing by visiting 
our website, www.noio.org. Um, but testing is essentially either a, a urine specimen or it's a swab. So it's really easy, quick, painless process. And not getting it treated, I imagine, is very dangerous. Yep, not getting it treated can lead to some other complications. Um, in women, it can lead to what's called pelvic inflammatory disease um, that can eventually develop some issues with fertility for women. Um, and then there are also some other complications with men as well that can arise. Okay. Courtney, once again, could you give me that website? Yep, that's www.noyo.org. Okay. Courtney Smith, always nice chatting with you. Thank you for the update, and thank you for joining us on Open Spaces. Sure, thank you. Award-winning author Timothy Egan's newest book, The Immortal Irishman, tells the story of Irish revolutionary Thomas Francis Marr and how he changed the course of history in Ireland, Australia, and the United States. Egan will be coming to the University of Wyoming campus in Laramie Tuesday, April 18th, to give a talk on his book. He spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard and says he first discovered Marr's story on a visit to Montana. I found him when I was in Montana um, talking to then-Governor Brian Schweitzer of Montana. And they have this giant equestrian statue in front of the Montana Capitol. You can't miss it. And I said, uh, who's the guy on the horse? And the uh, governor said, you call yourself an Irishman. You don't know who Thomas Francis Moore is. And that sort of led me to this road of discovery, to this remarkable human being who changed people's lives on three continents. Marr not only has an incredible story, but he also captures the coming of age and also the anxieties about immigration, nationalism, uh, and identity surrounding two, even three nations, that's Ireland, Australia, and the U.S., at critical points in their histories. Was he unique in how he interacted with all of these nations at these critical points? I mean, first of all, it's just astonishing to find someone who didn't even live to his 44th birthday, who um, left a huge legacy on three continents. I mean, there are three Australians. Remember, Australia was founded as a penal colony, but it ended up being a place where the British dumped more than 150,000 Irish, including most of the political prisoners. Um, and Mar, while he was a prisoner there, writing under a different name, helped to get rid of the penal colony. Uh, there are three blacks in the United States because his Irish brigade fought so valiantly on behalf of the Union for what ultimately freed the slaves. And there eventually would be a free Ireland um, in the 20th century when the Irish Republic was finally founded after 800 years of British subjugation, in part because his words were resurrected. So it's, it, it's so unique to find someone at that relatively young age who affected so many things. Also, in terms of the, just the nationalism part of it, he, he was an Irish nationalist. You know, he wanted his people to have feel to govern themselves, which is a basic desire of any people. But he became sort of a universal fighter of injustice. Um, and that's what got him in trouble in Montana when he ran up against the vigilantes. He just, he always was on the side of the underdog, uh, I think as most Irish should be. And so he, he picked a lot of fights with the right kinds of enemies. And unfortunately, in the end, uh, he probably paid for it with his life. Marr did eventually come west and become the territorial governor of Montana. What did the West symbolize for Marr? Yeah, it was really interesting because I found this detail and I sort of extrapolated on it. I don't think it got very much attention in the history books. 
For a while, they were thinking of Montana Territory, which did include Idaho for a while, as a, something called New Ireland. So the American ambassador to Dublin said, why don't we have one of our territories designated New Ireland? Now, it would still be an American territory, but they would, they would try to move the Irish immigrant masses who were living, as I mentioned, in these horrible tenement slums to stack the top of each other in the Lower East Side of New York and in Boston, Philadelphia, to the clean air and high country of the Rockies. And so Marshall took up on this idea. And what happened in Montana is they came up against the Know Nothing Party remnants. That was a group that was really anti-immigration, anti-Catholic, anti-Irish. There were a lot of Freemasons, and they were vigilantes, and they were like the proper citizens, and they were the bankers and the lawyers. And they were executing people without trial, and that's who Mark came up against. Those people did not like these Irish immigrants, these Catholics, these somewhat clannish people coming to the territory. So that's what he came up against in his last great battle of his life. A lot of people are using ancestry DNA testing, and um, there's obviously a, a large portion of this country who have their roots in Ireland. Have you seen renewed interest in the history of Irish in America? Yeah, absolutely. So I just got back from Pittsburgh where I gave a talk before 1,700 people at Carnegie Hall on this very topic. And it was typical afterward. I mean, hundreds of people came up and all they wanted to do was talk about their their family roots and they traced their ancestors to the great famine or coming over on one of the immigrant coffin ships. And it's it's very healthy and very good. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I was trying to find my own identity. Both Irish parents and I'm pretty much like 90% Irish, but I haven't done ancestry or 23 and me. But yeah, there's a huge surge, you know, reawakening of interest in, in people just wanting to know their story and where they're from and how they got here. And Irish story was the first of what were many, many repetitive immigrant cycles. Germans, Eastern European Jews, Southern Italians, Poles, uh, Russians, Asians, now largely Mexicans and Latinos from south of the border. It's just the American story repeating itself. Author Timothy Egan is coming to Laramie April 18th to speak in the University of Wyoming Union Ballroom. It's free and open to the public. Thank you so much for making the time today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Open Spaces. Remember, if you want to support this program or our local news coverage, please do so via our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also find today's stories and past programs on that website. Anna Rader is our web editor. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.